Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. A while ago, last week, or maybe a week and a half or so, um, Carol gave a, a talk, a lovely talk on Yata Buddha. Remember that one? <clears throat> Things as they are. About how we can uh, accept the moment, how just opening up to the moment and realizing as Ajahn Sumedho says, it's like this, that this is a, a powerful gateway to freedom and awakening. And, uh, and then uh, this last week, Winnie gave a talk on uh, letting go of agendas. And uh, again, uh, the idea of letting go of how we think things should be is um, is a real aid to the practice and, and opening. But the Buddha said beyond coming to terms with the moment, beyond letting go of how we'd like the moment to be as being a, a way to not create suffering. He also said that uh, letting go, that not just doing without, but that really letting go uh, is a genuine source of happiness. And I want to read to you a, a passage uh, from the Majima, the, the Buddha's words in Majima 19, where he says, um, As I abided thus, diligent, ardent, and resolute, a thought of renunciation arose in me. And I understood this. This thought of renunciation has arisen in me. This does not lead to my own affliction or to others' affliction or to the affliction bo- to b- of both. It aids wisdom, does not cause difficulties, and leads to nibbana. If I think and ponder upon this thought, even for a night, even for a day, even for a night and a day, I see nothing to fear from it. <clears throat> and he saw that along with thoughts of um, compassion and thoughts of um, loving kindness, that thoughts of renunciation actually led to a great ease and being within him. I want to talk about this tonight, that what is called nakama, renunciation in the in the Pali renunciation it doesn't sound very 
much fun. Kind of like you're making a sacrifice and you'll kind of put up with it. But that um, renunciation is not a sacrifice and it's not a a deprivation and it's not being a martyr. That um, you're giving up what complicates. You're giving up what confuses and contracts the mind. You're putting down a burden that you don't need to carry. This is the kind of renunciation that he was talking about that brought about a great ease and lightness. That you're putting down the extra baggage of what you don't need. And it's, it's such a relief. It's such a source of great happiness. Once we can discern what we want, which is endless, from what we need, which is not endless, which is um, not all that much, as it turns out. Sometimes renunciation is spoken of as simplicity. That's a much more um, friendly word. Oh, simplifying, simplicity, just making it uncomplicated. But I want to talk about it in even a more um, friendly and welcoming context. And that is having a mind and a heart of contentment, which is really what letting go of thinking that we need a whole lot more is all about. Contentment. Isn't that a lovely word? It's quite a, quite a shift from renunciation. Simplicity. Contentment. Ah, now we're talking. <clears throat> well, it's all the same thing. Contentment is embracing what's here and seeing that it's enough. It's wanting what you have. I'm just trying to think of the title of that. um, Somebody help me. That Sinead O'Connor song. What is it? I I want... I do not want what I haven't got. That's pretty cool. Imagine not wanting what you haven't got. You got it made, right? That means everything that you, that you have is enough. And contentment is something that the Buddha spoke directly about, not just in terms of renunciation. In the, uh, in the uh, Sutta on Blessings, uh, the Mangala Sutta, he says, uh, to be reverent and humble content and grateful. This is a blessing supreme. Reverent and humble, content and grateful. This is a blessing supreme. And in the the Metta Sutta, Discourse on Loving Kindness, let them be humble and not conceited contented and easily satisfied. 
this is the way to uh, loving kindness. When you're contented and easily satisfied, then you're not looking for more to complete you. And so rather than seeing what you need to take in, you have, it's a generative, it's an expansive feeling when you're contented and easily satisfied, then you have something to give because you're coming from a place of sufficiency. But it's such a paradox in this world where craving is so much part of the human experience, it's so hard to see this simple secret. We keep on getting fooled into thinking that the next one will do it. And this is so 2,500 years ago, and it's even more so these days, brought to a high art of fanning desires. Let me see if I brought it here with me. Yes. Some of you have seen this. I love this. Um, Just shows the predicament so clearly. The gold shivers. This ad. Beautiful woman draped in gold. Very appealing. Two-page ad. The gold shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth. Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. (laughs) Other side, you can take a look at at her while I'm reading. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. (laughs) From the first small shiver of excitement, when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye, to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. Among life's pleasures, count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. It's really powerful. Now, if this was a force that the Buddha said is something to be reckoned with, imagine what we're up against now. As it's said... According to uh, this book, Culture Jam, the average American gets 3,000 messages like this each day. Unless you're on retreat here, you know. (laughs) You are in a very secluded, exclusive environment. But if you plug in, either in virtual reality or walking around the street or turning on a TV or a radio, 3,000 messages a day saying, you think you're happy, but you're not happy. This is going to make you happier. This is what you really need to make you happy. And it's so much a part of our culture as the the famous line by, uh, uh, that was an exchange put to John D. Rockefeller when he was asked, how much money will be enough? And he said, just a little more. Just imagine the richest man, I think at that time, 
on, uh, on the planet, or certainly one of the richest, not being satisfied just a little more. There's no end to that, is there? So I first want to talk a little bit about the outside world and then relate it to what we're doing here. This is... Um, <clears throat> This is how the system works <clears throat> in um, there's a an incredible um, amount of um, not only research but now um, uh, awareness of how much our consumer society is is one of the greatest threats to our survival on the planet. Uh, but this is only in recent times. This is from the economist Victor Lebeau, um, writing just after World War II, uh, about how our system operates. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate if the system is to flourish. That's how it's rigged. And it's very effective. Here's a few statistics. The average United States person now consumes twice as much as they did 50 years ago. We, see, we each see more advertisements in one year than people 50 years ago saw in a lifetime. In the U.S., we spend three to four times as many hours shopping as our counterparts in Europe. And just uh, a couple more to drive the point home. Americans spend more for trash bags than 90 of the world's 210 countries spend for everything. We have twice as many shopping malls as high schools, and we consume our average body weight, 120 pounds, every day in extracted and processed materials. Hmm. How does that grab you? Whew. In... Uh, in the world, in, uh, uh, during the Vietnam War, <clears throat> uh, when uh, uh, Thailand was an ally and the U.S. wanted to um, make sure that Thailand didn't go communist, they wanted to infuse it with our consumer uh, mindset. And part of that, and they had been very successful, unfortunately. Part of that was that they wanted to and put pressure, actually, on um, 
the uh, Buddhist monastics, the monastic community, to eliminate contentment from the teachings. This is true. And actually, they were very close to um, succeeding. Most of the monastic community uh, was going to go along with it. Uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was a great, uh, besides being a great scholar and a, and a, a very uh, deeply um, uh, uh, wise and respected uh, monastic, probably the, the most respected monastic, monastic, said, no, this is not Buddha Dharma. And he almost single-handedly not only refused to go along with it, but said, hey, wake up, folks. And uh, they they didn't succeed in that campaign. So one thing to keep in mind is that while there can be inner contentment, there can also be very courageous and direct action uh, that is not just going along with the status quo. Wanting, this wanting that we are so swept up by and that we are so uh, indoctrinated with, it contracts the mind. It's the second noble truth. The cause of suffering is wanting. The, an exchange between uh, the, uh, the king of the Brahmins, Saka, with the Buddha. What is it that chains us? And the Buddha says, what chains us is attachment to our preferences. And just to, this is probably not news to you, but just to give you a sense of uh, how, how it works, I just invite you to uh, close your eyes for a moment. And uh, as you sit here, just relax, take a few mindful breaths, yourself just be at ease. You might listen to the sounds or the sound of quiet just to let the, the mind and the heart be very open and at ease. And now think of something you really want. either here on the retreat or at home, something you really want. Let yourself go for it. Get in touch with how wonderful it would be to have that. Notice how it feels. Now, just for a moment, go back again to the breath or to listening. Come back. Know that you're sitting here breathing alive. And now notice something in this moment right now to appreciate. I'd be sitting in a room with people, hearing a Dharma talk, 
whatever sensations. Notice something right here, right now to appreciate. Okay, you can open your eyes. You notice any difference? Isn't it amazing? Just one thought. There you are just minding your own business and all of a sudden, oh, wouldn't it be nice and... And it's so seductive, it feels good for a few moments. And it keeps us engaged, but it's a real contraction of mind, isn't it? That can work with things that we want and it can also work in our relationships with people. Here's another simple exercise that I, I like to do. Just to close, again, close your eyes and um, think of somebody who you have genuine metta for. You might, as you bring them to mind, have an image of them and just uh, send them a few moments of of loving kindness, just wishing them well. May you be happy. May you be really happy. And see them happy in a happy moment. And uh, just let yourself enjoy that, wishing them well. May you be happy. Maybe see a big smile on their face or delight. Now for a moment, think of something that you want from them. Attention, approval, whatever it is. Think of something that you want from them. You probably have had that experience with them once or twice. Notice how that feels in your body, in your mind. And now, once again, go back to just sending them thoughts of loving kindness. Just wishing them well. May you be happy. It's that outflow of goodwill. Seem with a smile on their face. Okay, again, you can open up your eyes if you'd like. Notice any difference? Isn't that amazing? Just one thought of wanting something from somebody cuts off the love. Maybe it's there, but it certainly gets distorted by what can I get from this person as opposed to, "Mm, may you be well. So, does that mean that um, we're never supposed to want anything? No, that's not so. We're human, and we certainly have wants that are healthy desires, and we are not going to go around unless you're a monastic, and in this situation... It's simplifying way down. Uh, But if you're living in the world, there's going to be wants. 
and there's going to be desires. So what's the what's the balance? How do you how do you have a healthy kind of relationship with your wants in the world? This is um, from <coughs> excuse me the um, the great uh, Buddhist scholar um, monk uh, philosopher uh, Paiuto. He says uh, about the Buddhist concept of moderation. When when does enough become satisfying? It is an awareness of that optimum point where enhancement of true well-being coincides with the experience of satisfaction. Consumption must be balanced to an, appro- an amount appropriate with well-being rather than to the satisfaction of desires. In contrast to maximum consumption leading to maximum satisfaction, we have moderate or wise consumption leading to well-being. This is seeing that there's a point at which it becomes diminishing returns to want more and more and more. And that this is the difference between tanha, craving, and uh, uh, chanda, a, a kind of desire that's a beneficial desire and that's a healthy desire. But it takes real consciousness to see the difference. And we're not doing so well in our country. Just check this out. In, the, in 1946, the U.S. was the happiest country among four advanced economies. Thirty years later, it was eighth among 11 advanced countries. A decade after that, it ranked 10th among 23 nations, many of them from the third world. We're not getting this idea of the point of well-being coinciding with satisfaction. So there's also... Besides the wanting of stuff and the lack of contentment with what we have, there's also um, discontent in time. How he gave the talk, a wonderful talk on the trance of time. And time can also fuel our wanting and our discontent when we think maybe the next moment is going to be better. The, the hidden promise, that's often what I think of, the, the hidden promise just around the corner of what the future might have in store for us. In our daily lives, it's not being here for the present as we try to fit more in. Maybe the next thing and the next thing. And so we have this whole to-do list of things that we want or that we need to do and we're completely pulled into the next moment. And what we really crave is space and balance. Isn't it so? This is, this is a, a beautiful letter that uh, Alice Walker wrote to Obama right after the election. She says, it was an open letter, it was 
all over the internet. A primary responsibility that you do have, Mr. President, is to cultivate happiness in your own life, to make a schedule that permits sufficient time of rest and play with your gorgeous wife and lovely daughters. From your happy, relaxed state, you can model real success, which is all that so many people in the world really want. This is not easy to do. I hope he gets a little rest from time to time. It's not easy for us to do. This is from Peace Pilgrim, who's very inspiring um, American sage who traveled 28 years just walking around the country delivering a message of peace, basically with a toothbrush. And she says, um, if your life is in harmony with your part in the life pattern, and if you're obedient to the laws which govern the universe, then your life is full and good but not overcrowded. If it is overcrowded, you're doing more than is right for you to do, more than is your job to do in the total scheme of things. So we all know this feeling in our lives of filling up our schedule and leaning forward to the next thing. But we can see this very clearly even on retreat even when there's not a whole lot to do on the to-do list. Somebody was saying, gosh, there's, this is a busy retreat. There's so many things going on. Then, then there's, there's interviews, then there's yoga, and then there's the Brahma Viharas, and then there's the eating, and then there's the work meditation, and there's, you know, it's, have you noticed? There's not a whole lot going on, but it seems very, well, it's the next thing I've got to do. Oh my goodness, I've got to go to my room and and wash up. How will I have time to do that between everything going on in this schedule? Somebody else from the outside comes and looks at the schedule. Sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk. There's got to be more entertainment than that. But it gets full, doesn't it? And we're, even when there's not a whole lot to do, we still find ourselves leaning forward just a little bit in the sitting, of course, just leaning forward maybe for something better just around, even if you're having a very enjoyable experience, sometimes especially if you're having a very enjoyable experience, the mind says, oh, it's good now. Maybe it's going to get even better in a few moments. And what happens, you cut yourself off from connection with what's here right now. Or when you're walking, I I know this feeling, walking back and forth, right? And somehow, when you're getting close to the end of the lane, oh, okay, I'm almost finished to the end of that lane. What happens? You just turn around and go back again. You know? But there you are, oh, okay, about finished with that lane. <laughs> Do you, can you relate to what I'm saying? 
wh- what are we looking for? <laughs> What's going to happen when we get to the end of the lane? You know? uh, in the in-between times, from sitting to walking, Oh, the bell rang, ends the sitting. Okay, now I've got to get to the walking. You know? And somehow you magically go from point A to point B, the walking, your walking space, and sometimes have no idea how you got there because you've got a mission. Oh, I've got to get to the walking. Or from even more obvious, from walking, the bell rings for mealtime. Know, and you might find yourself just kind of pulled by your nose or whatever. You know, I think that is one of the most uh, powerful places to be present, going down the hill to the dining room. Can you be here for that instead of toppling forward to, what's for lunch anyway? Oh. This is how we get pulled out of contentment with the moment. Here's another little exercise that I find really um, revealing. Just um, as you're sitting here, uh, just let yourself be very relaxed. And uh, you can open your eyes for this one if you like, either way, open or closed. And once again, um, think of something you want, maybe something... uh, on the retreat or something when you get home, just something you're really looking forward to. And imagine it's right out here in front of you, just outside of your reach. And if you can lean forward and touch it, you'll have instant gratification. So I'd like you to just play along with this if you want, you can open your eyes, but keep your butt on the cushion and just go for it. Come on, lean forward. If you really want it, go for it. Come on, don't be shy. And it's, oh, it's so close. And then you realize it's not happening. And now slowly come back and let your body feel what it's like to come back to center. This is quite unpleasant. Even though you know you can almost taste it. This is peace. Oh, it feels so good. We have discontent that besides looking for the next good thing, discontent born of aversion. We don't like what's here right now and we want it to change whether it's physical unpleasant sensations or mental hindrances. And we find ourselves either with self-judgment or with um, self-pity. I was at, this weekend I was with a a group, uh, my uh, DPP, one and two group, and uh, somebody in the group works with, uh, a, um, has a small class with people with chronic pain. And we were talking, I said, hey, I'm going to give a talk on contentment uh, tomorrow. I want to 
uh, hear about uh, what your thoughts are on contentment and how and what you've seen about working uh, about being with uh, yourself or with others who um, who found contentment and this uh, friend in her class with chronic pain she talked about two people she said one guy is in a wheelchair he has M- uh, MS uh, 24-hour care very uh, no no uh, money to speak of um, he had been at one point in his life alcoholic and, and, and suicidal somehow in his circumstances in the last period of his life he's found deep contentment and he's energetic He's, she says, he's completely engaged, very political, he's got a very good mind, great heart, energetic, interested, and there's, there's no vestige of self-pity in there. She says, he's just really uh, amazing, a delight to be around, very inspiring for her. And then she said a second person who is uh, blind, diabetic, She's allergic to insulin, a diabetic who's allergic to insulin. And she's always on the cusp and in a lot of pain. And she was, uh, my friend went with her um, to, in the waiting room for, um, uh, med- uh, for um, some hospital situation. And it was a little bit scary. And she said, this person didn't have any fear. She was just sitting in the waiting room saying, oh, I know what this is like. It's okay. So it's not so much about what our ideas of how we think things should be, um, or it's not so much the circumstances that will determine our discontent or content, but our the way we hold our experience. So, what is contentment? Where, how can we experience contentment? Well, what we're doing here is really practicing moment by moment to learn more and more that this moment is enough. And you've probably seen it many, many, many times that a moment of mindfulness, of genuine mindfulness, is a moment where it's complete, where you don't need to add anything extra to make it a better experience. I love this line in the Third Zen Patriarch. It says, uh, the way is perfect like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. This is what we're discovering here. In the moment of mindfulness, where there's not grasping, and not pushing away, and not identifying with experience, that's a moment of completeness. Another experiment that uh, I first learned from Joseph that I love, just put your hand out in front of you. And move it back and forth and move it slowly close your eyes 
and put all your attention on feeling the movement. The vibration, the energy. Right now, do you need anything to make it a better moment? Is there any tomorrow or yesterday? It's just the feeling. Any confusion or fear? There's just what's happening right now. And it's quite enough. Okay, you can put your hand down. That is what we're training ourselves to have a fullness of mind and heart right in this moment where we don't need to add something to make it a better moment or take anything away. And we can do that with moving our hand or feeling a breath or taking a step or feeling a sensation. And the interesting thing is we can train ourselves to be interested whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. It's still can be an interesting show. And that takes a little bit of practice, but I think probably most of you have experienced this uh, many times in these days and weeks. It means allowing for it all to be here. Not just the good stuff. Not just when you're very pristine, quiet, and at ease and calm and clear. Ah, now it's happening. No, no. Oh, it's all empty. I can be with this. Yeah, it's easy to be with it then. A, a number of years ago, when I, I was with uh, Punjaji, who Howie's mentioned uh, before, and I, I had this exchange with him. I said. Uh, I had lots of different questions for him, and he would say, you know, "Give me all your questions." You know, and, and and I had lots. He said, "Any more questions?" I said, "Well, I just had, give me all your questions, all your questions." You know, and at the very end, I said, "Okay, I've got one last question, Punjaji." Um, I said, "He he he talks. He talked about emptiness all the time." And I said, um, you know, um, when uh, Buddhists, Dharma teachers and Buddhist students, when Buddhists talk about emptiness, um, it's very serious. It's very solemn. Sometimes it's very somber. Oh, the profoundness of emptiness. When you talk about emptiness... You're laughing, you're having just a great time. Oh, emptiness, and it's like you're in love with emptiness. I said, why is your emptiness so much more fun than than ours? (laughs) What's my final question for him? And he said, um, well, you know, when when you've touched something really profound in in the state of stillness, you can get fooled into thinking that the stillness is is where that profundity can be experienced and the other than stillness the activity and the and the aliveness and 
the the feeling of um, non-stillness seems not as profound. And so a lot of times meditators can think, oh yes, the stillness, this is where emptiness is. He says, but my emptiness, my emptiness rejects nothing. My emptiness rejects nothing. Has happiness and sorrow and love and confusion and joy and nothing is rejected from my emptiness. And he laughed. <laughs> I said, okay, I want to go for your emptiness. You know? And it kind of reminded me, this is not just uh, unique to him. It's right here in the teachings. So in, in Tibetan teachings, some Mahayana teachings, samsara and nirvana are one. Not to exclude anything from the moment. That wholeness, that contentment is not about struggling or bargaining, but allowing for it all, embracing it all. And as you move from resistance to completely holding it all with a spacious awareness, there's nothing that can taint that spaciousness. A number of years ago, uh, a Tibetan master was here uh, speaking at Monday night, and he said, um, at some point, I listened to the talk on tape because somebody, somebody said, he gave the secret teachings. You know? <laughs> and he said, I will tell you all of the Dharma distilled down to two words. Everybody was on the edge of their seat. I, and I was as I was listening. Yeah. And then he said, be spacious. That's the essence that he said of practice. A mind that can allow it all. That is content. That can be okay with the unpleasant. That was Joseph's, uh, Joseph Goldstein's mantra, for many years I took it to heart, it's okay, this is okay, it's okay. And just relaxing our resistance and the contracting thought that starts to create a struggle, to just relax the struggle. If you can get it connected, I was speaking with somebody today, if you can get it connected in your mind, oh, struggle, contracting thought, Ah, just relax. Then that spaciousness is a contentment that's not about circumstances being just perfect, but that spaciousness can include discontent. You're renouncing your attachment to it being a certain way and allowing for the awareness to hold it all. The awareness can hold it all. That which is aware of discontent is not discontent. The awareness of fear is not afraid. The awareness of confusion or anger is not confused or angry. And so when you remember to be the awareness there's nothing that you need to change inside. You're just seeing the dance of 
fear or anger or confusion doing its thing in this space of awareness. It doesn't mean you love everything that's going on, but it means that you uh, don't fight it. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. Sometimes there are things one doesn't like about oneself, but metta means not being caught up in the thoughts we have, the attitudes, the problems, the feelings in mind. So it becomes an immediate practice of being very mindful. To be mindful means to have metta towards the fear in your mind or the anger or the jealousy. Metta means not creating problems around existing conditions, but allowing them to fade away, to cease on their own. For example, when fear comes up in your mind, you can have metta for the fear, meaning that you don't build up aversion to it. You can just accept its presence and allow it to cease naturally. This is where contentment comes, not in, in getting rid of anything, but in allowing and not fueling it with your reactions. And contentment with the pleasant, not getting caught up in wanting more. It's all here. Joseph has this, has this uh, instruction to himself, already here, already here. It's all here. You don't need to want any more. There is a sufficiency. Uh, Adam, my, my son, uh, had this uh, beautiful phrase he got in touch with uh, uh, this last year when in, in a kind of meditative state. He said, oh, it's the feeling of abundant enoughness. Isn't that lovely? Abundant enoughness. It's all here. And it comes from this place of sufficiency and gratitude for everything that you've been given. <clears throat> this year I, I uh, visited Ramdas on Hawaii. Um, and I, uh, uh, it, was, it was really great visiting with him. And I said... Um, and he told me that he was writing a book on contentment. <clears throat> so there's probably a whole lot more to look forward to when, when that gets finished. And I said, well, uh, wow, that sounds really neat, um, but it's not going to come out for a little while. Can you tell me in a few words what your secret of contentment is? Why not? Go for it. And he said, oh, yeah. Oh, cool. You know. <clears throat> and then he said, the secret is plumb the depths of this moment. I love that. Plumb the depths of this moment. That's what contentment is. To be fully here where you're not wanting or becoming, looking forward for anything next. You know, in, in dependent origination, the wheel of dependent origination, there's, after there's craving and grasping, and then there's becoming. I think somebody mentioned it here, where you're, you know, what, what can either I become or what can I make happen? This is uh, 
bhava, becoming. And when we're in that state of becoming, there's no place for contentment. And, but the ego is threatened at the thought of not creating something and making it better. And it resists just being here right now with how it is. Because, you know, who am I if I'm not going to be on a self-improvement project? Um, I want to read from my, my good friend uh, Anam Rinpoche, Anam Tupton Rinpoche, where he says, uh, the true spiritual path is not about becoming, it's about not becoming when we let go of this futile effort to be or become somebody, freedom and enlightenment take care of themselves. We see that we're inherently divine already and we're enchanted to see how effortlessly liberation unfolds. True liberation requires the complete renunciation and transcendence of our ego, the self. We might think, oh, this is the same old message, this idea about eradicating attachment to the self. I've heard it many times. More than that, I've failed at it many times. <laughs> Actually, I came here looking for a different solution. I still want enlightenment, but I want a different method. Ego says, I still want enlightenment, but without this whole business about eradicating self-attachment. I'll do anything except that. Please give me a break. Let's bargain a little. Ego likes to bargain, to have an argument with the truth. Ask me to do anything. I'll jump off a cliff. I'll restrain my sexual impulses. I'll do anything, but don't ask me to do this. I can't do this because if I do, I'll die into the great unknowable truth. <laughs> and once again, we start wiggling around this last assignment of dissolving the self or melting into what is. Actually, there's no way to bargain with the truth emptiness, whatever we call it, truth or emptiness, dissolving into it is the only way. <clears throat> Plumbing the, depth, the depths of this moment, when you do, there's no one around to be discontent. There's just a loving presence, a pure awareness that is connecting with experience. Betsy Rose, who sings with the family program, wonderful singer, she has this beautiful song, My Mind is Like a Clear Blue Sky. And she says, and she sings this with the kids, you know, and with adults. My mind is like a clear blue sky. And the clouds come, you know, the worries. And the clouds come, and my mind is like a clear... And the clouds go, and my mind is like a clear blue sky. And the rain comes, the tears. And the rain goes, my mind is like a clear blue sky. And the storms come, and the storms go, but my mind is like a clear blue sky. It doesn't matter what is happening within your experience, it does not affect it all, the clear blue sky, the pure awareness that is shining through. This is uh, Anam Tupton again. <clears throat> Sometimes when we sit and pay attention to our breath, ego tries to jeopardize our path. Ego tells us, well, this is too simple. You're getting nowhere. There's nothing special happening here. 
there are no fireworks. This isn't going to lead anywhere. Ego is trying to seduce us into chasing some beautiful exotic illusion. But if we just surrender and remain in that present awareness, paying attention to our breath, whatever is happening, then amazingly, the self dies. There's no longer a self who says, I don't like what's going on. I don't like this ordinary moment. I don't just don't like just sitting here paying attention to the breath. The I who doesn't like what is unfolding is completely gone. And that's all that matters in the ultimate sense. When self dissolves in this way, everything is already awakened. Trees are awakened, rocks are awakened, birds are enlightened, and the clouds in the sky are enlightened. When the Buddha had this moment of complete realization, he discovered the whole universe is already enlightened. The whole universe becomes suddenly enlightened and perfect just as it is. In this moment of pure awareness, there's nothing more that you need to do. There's nothing you need to take away or add. The way is perfect like vast space where nothing is in excess. Now, the Buddha did warn about one aspect of contentment. He said, there's one thing to be aware of in your opening to contentment. Actually, he said, two things I came to know well, not to be content with good states of mind so far achieved, and to be unremitting in one's commitment to liberation. So it's a paradox. On the one hand, there's nothing to do but just completely open up to the moment, and on the other, it takes a deep ongoing commitment to have that vision of freedom, of full liberation, and not to be content with whatever you happen to experience until you're free. Contentment, though, is moving from this contraction to an expansion where you're giving to life. And the way to full liberation is to keep opening to this moment just as it is, when you can, without a struggle, not with resignation, not with bargaining, but with an attitude that appreciates and embraces the gift that's here right for you, the, the possibility to be fully interested with kind awareness, and that leads to this miracle of awakening. And I want to end with my favorite passage from Shantideva about this amazing possibility. As a blind person feels when they find a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death, the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. The tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life. The bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life. The cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated. 
the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. So let's sit for a moment. as a blind person feels upon finding a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.